please stand for the reading of God's word. We're going to be in Genesis 3, verses 14 through 19. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Amen. You may be seated. Before we get started today, I'd like to take a moment to pray. Uh, As some of you know, we have had some loss in our congregation, and I was just struck as we were singing this last song. um, What great hope we have, even in that place of loss and death and the brokenness of this world. So let's pray. Lord, we come to you. We come to you humbled. Lord, you are the ruler and creator of all things. And we're reminded of that today. God, even in the face of the consequences of our own sin and death, and even in the sadness that we face together as your people, God, you are good to us. Because death is not the end, Father, and you have made a way for us that is so much greater than we could ever imagine and ever know. And Lord, we are thankful for that, and we hold tight to those truths today as we examine your word. We love you, Lord. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Well, good morning. I'm Coleman Barber, for those of you who don't know me, um, and I'm glad to be here with you today. As you can tell, we are back in our Genesis series. When we started this series, we lived in a different world. COVID had just hit. Everyone was busy trusting the science. In fact, the world still believed that we would figure it out and make our way through because mankind is so great and we can achieve anything we set our minds to, right? (laughs) That's right. That mindset if you're not familiar, is called humanism. And it generally will jettison any ideas of God and it focuses on man having essentially no limits. When there's a problem, we say, well, one day we'll figure that out. We've got science and we have education. And Cody noted that this was not much different than the ancient people who Genesis was written to. They believed in gods that were something more akin to just man, but enlarged, kind of like us, but bigger and more powerful. Well, I'm here to tell you the context of scripture has not changed. That has not changed, but ours has. Everything that has happened 
since March of 2020, all over the world has proven to so many that man cannot just fix it. We can't do everything we put our mind to. We have to reach out to something, to someone bigger. In fact, I saw this just the other day. I saw a sticker in the Bonner Springs parking lot on a car, and it was a fish made to look like Thor stabbing the Jesus fish that we're probably all familiar with. I didn't think anything of it at first, but then I looked at the car, and on the side, it was covered in all of these Norse runes. I was kind of taken aback, because we don't expect that, do we? But people have begun, they've begun to turn to something beyond just the generically spiritual. There's still that, too. There's plenty of that. But now we have people reaching out to traditional paganism in their search for something to explain the universe to them. We are literally seeing the rise of the old gods as people desperately look for something to give them meaning. So where we started this series with atheism and humanism in view, and don't get me wrong, this is still everywhere today. This is still the prevalent view. The tides are turning. We now see people turning to the spiritual because, frankly, everything else has failed them. And this, I'm here to tell you, is a problem for the church. See, I have this deep-set fear, and it rocks me to my core. I say this because I've spent so much of my own life behaving in exactly the same manner as I'm about to say. I fear that in our haste and in our zeal to be people who are about the Bible, to be theologically accurate about the positions we hold, or even to rightly apply it, we've forgotten to believe it. That might sound like a total contradiction. How could someone care so deeply about the scriptures and not believe them? Well, it's rather easy, really. We can download all these facts and we utilize the wisdom it gives us to great effect in our lives while we're missing out on the power and the truth of scripture itself. And that's really what I'm talking about when I say that we don't believe the Bible. I'm talking about the truth of it. We may shape our lives around this book, and we may feel the right things, but what do we actually believe is true? As we jump back into Genesis today, our belief about what these first 11 chapters say will have a profound impact on how we view not just Genesis, not just the rest of Scripture, but the very universe on a fundamental level for us. Often we come to these passages, and because they are ancient, they're literally thousands of years old, we view them from the outside. We dissect them, and we play with them, and we develop little categories so that we have a nice little system for our own personal theology. But we often forget to treat them as what they truly are. The truth is that they are our story. They're our history. We treat them more like stories of Robin Hood and King Arthur than something like watching a World War II documentary or a 9-11 documentary, which some of us even lived through. Worse yet, we care less about knowing them than knowing the whole Marvel timeline. Don't worry, no spoilers. We dumb them down and we tell them like fairy tales. As one author noted, we do the Bible a huge disservice by turning mighty warriors and wise kings into 3D animated vegetables. <laughs> but I digress. That's a shot at VeggieTales. Uh, <laughs> 
our story is better because it is true. And I want you to say this with me. Our story is better because it is true. And because we believe this, we must treat these first 11 chapters as true and accurate accounts of God's dealing with man. And I hope that by the time we are finished with these 11 chapters today, the truth will be set deep in your soul. That the implications of this truth would expand your love for a creator who deserves nothing but glory and praise. We just sang about that. Yet his loving rule was rejected and continues to be rejected to this day. That you would see Christ as exalted above all things and the first fruits of our own redemption and the redemption of all things. And that you would see that our story is better than any other story that Satan or that man has to offer. Our story is every bit as fantastic as any fantasy or science fiction, as important as any biography, and it's certainly better for our souls than any of the poison that we call self-help. But unlike the fictions that we create, whether for entertainment or coping mechanisms, the story found in the first 11 chapters of Genesis is true. So let's start out. We start with nothing, okay? Like a blank page, a universe with nothing in it. And this is actually wildly important. This is the bedrock of our story. Genesis 1-1 starts with a beginning. That might sound insignificant to us, but the going view of the ancient world was that time didn't move in a line. It moved in a cycle. The clock was always running itself back around again. But the Bible here says that time began. And not only this, but it began when God said it did. And this means that we have a God that is beyond time. Time is actually dependent on him. He gives it its start and sets the whole universe in motion. But it's not just time that depends on God. He speaks everything into being. Everything is created by him. And I want to take a moment here to talk about what I mean by everything. It means the heavens and the earth. We need to understand that this doesn't just mean stars and planets and moons and galaxies and the like. He made all of that. But the ancient readers of this text, they would understand this to mean that everything that is beyond the earth, that includes the seen and the unseen. And this means the spiritual realm is also created by God. The earthly realm and all that is in it and the heavenly realm and all that is in it. So why do I want to take time to talk about this? You're really going in on heaven here, Coleman. I think this is the first place that we run into something that we don't actually believe. We live our lives completely devoid of the spiritual. We exchange the truth that God created both the spiritual and material aspects of the universe for the lie that everything is material. And when I say material, I mean made of matter. It's made of physical stuff. I'm not talking about a generic we here either, just as general people. I'm talking about the church specifically. So in reality, we reject prayer. We reject obedience. And we reject truth for some new formula on how to do church or how to be successful in our lives. 
And even worse, we start to make compromises and inject those ideas into Scripture. And we don't let Scripture tell us what reality is. We try and do the opposite. How do we recognize when that's starting to happen? Well, if you're listening to someone and they're explaining to you how some new sociology or some new pop psychology concept actually sheds brand new light on scripture and we can look at it in a totally different way, then that is a time to run. Run away from them. And if that is you, listen, it's a good time to repent. Turn away from that. Lean into the Bible. Let the Bible shape you, not the other way around. But there's a key here that I want to talk about. Our key is that we have to get back to this enchanted view of what God has made. And I say enchantment not in some sort of hocus-pocus magic sort of way. I mean the true enchantment, meaning that God is a being that is completely different. He's not just some being that's higher up in the pecking order of our creation. No, he is above creation itself. He's beyond it. He tran- he's transcendent. That means that he transcends not just the physical realm, but the universe itself and all that's in it. All things were created by him, and nothing exists apart from his very spoken word. We must have this kind of view of God. We must always see him as greater because even the wildest thing we could come up with in our imagination is not as great as him. He's greater than anything we could imagine. But this, this is just the beginning still. (laughs) This is the foundational truth that actually undergirds all the rest of the story. It's so vitally important. And all of that is in one verse. Genesis 1.1, God made the heavens and the earth. But we have to move quickly on. As we look over the creation week where God creates all things, we see that he does this in a pattern. He forms things. He makes the heavens, the earth, the waters, the air, and he fills things, celestial bodies, angels, birds, fish, and beasts. And finally, the pinnacle of his creation, God creates man, and he gives him a job. Genesis 1, 28 through 30 says, And God blessed them. And he said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves, and so on. See, God essentially gives the keys to the earth to man and says, I made it all, and I made you to fill it and keep it. Tend the garden. So God gave man a job. And this is significant because remember how significant God actually is? Remember that he created all these things. We just talked about his transcendence. He made it all. And then he made man in his image and gave us the job of running it. Now, this doesn't mean that God doesn't rule it. But just like the kingdoms and the kings in those days, we have, these, we have this greater king, God, the high king of all, we talked about in a song earlier today. And you have these lesser kings. And these great kings would reign over the whole kingdom, and these lesser kings would reign over little parts, smaller kingdoms within it. And this wasn't something that they came up with. This wasn't something man just injected into the Bible. They actually did that because it's part of the design. 
See, God is the great king above all, and we are the lesser kings who were simply given the authority to rule over it. And if you remember back that far, we talked about the image of God when I preached this passage. And at the very least, part of that image is tied to this idea. God is the ruler of all things, and he made us to reflect in the physical world the truth about his rulership over all things, even the unseen world. So he made us distinct, and he made us unique. He made us fit for the job. And we move now to Genesis 2, and we see that he forms the man and fills him with the breath of life. God does something unique with man here. It's different from all the other created beings. Man is not like the angels who reside primarily in the spiritual realm and do God's bidding there. Man has a physical body. He's formed from the earth. The man also has a soul, the breath of life. And this is a spiritual side. Man, listen, because this is a popular view and it's wrong. Man is not a soul in a meat suit. Man is a body and soul put together. One author I heard coined it this way, and I found it super helpful. We are embodied souls. We have one foot on the earth, and yet we too are spirit. And so we're uniquely outfitted for the job of being God's ruling representatives over his creation. Before man sinned, which we're coming up to quickly, he was in perfect communion with God. He had everything he needed, and his work was a pleasure rather than a toil. And that'd be nice. God gave him a wife and a mountaintop garden. He even started naming the animals. Things were good. Man was ruling in righteousness by God's rule. And man, being both flesh and spirit, could, up to now, rightly reflect the reality of God's rule in the spiritual realm and beyond. See, God is a righteous king, and man at this point, our first father Adam and our first mother Eve, were a righteous king and queen over all the earth. But now we come to the end of Eden, and I want to reflect on a few things before our story takes the turn that we all know is coming. We have seen to this point a story about God, his power, his transcendent nature. All things are totally dependent upon him. Nothing has a beginning without him, not time, not matter. The universe itself and everything in it cannot, do not, and would not exist without the God that we read about here. Hear this. This fact has never changed and will never change. Not only that, but God has designed man for a purpose, to reflect the glory of God in the way that he rules over the earth according to God's righteous standard. We were made to righteously rule. And this also is still true. That's our job. This is what the Bible teaches. Do we believe that? Does this truth inform how you type an email? Does this truth inform what you watch with your kids, what you watch alone, how you do your school, whether you're a kid or an adult, how you vote, what kind of spouse that you are? In all these things and everything else, do you strive to fill the earth with the glory of God? 
So we have to sit deeply in this reality as we feel the weight of what happens next. God gave man one rule. And that seems wild to us, but it's really all he needed because remember, up until this point, man was righteous. There was only one rule that we had to follow at that point because we were doing it all right. The perfect God who made a perfect world then gave it to his beloved image bearers to rule. And he gave them one simple command. He said, don't eat of a specific tree. Sounds simple. And now we're in Genesis 3. And so I fear again that we find ourselves at another place of unbelief, especially for those of us who've grown up in the church and we've heard this story that's about to come a thousand times. Maybe that's a literal thousand times for some of us, or maybe that's just some figurative massive number. Either way, we don't actually care about this part of the story. And I don't mean that we don't care about sin itself, especially when it makes us feel bad or there's some consequence to be had. No, no, I mean we don't care about what sin actually is. And I think that's rooted in everything that we just talked about over the first few chapters. We no longer feel the weight of who God actually is. We no longer understand how grave a transgression it is to not just not do our job as our role as appointed heirs is, as appointed rulers, but we rebelled against him. We lost our communion with God, our place at his table, our fellowship with him. We had so much and we squandered it for the sake of ill-gotten wisdom and a piece of fruit. So Adam and Eve, being lied to and tempted by Satan himself, ate of the fruit and instead of rejecting the enemy, as was their duty as the rulers over this world, they took it. And this is nothing short of rebellion against their king, the very God of the universe himself. We, listen, we will never understand the gravity of our sin until we believe the truth about who God is. There's nothing worse that we can do than to rebel against him. Note that before sin, in this passage, here in Genesis 3, our passage today, before sin, God blessed them. And here in our passage, that blessing has turned to curses. We've been cast out of the garden, the place where God walks with man. Where our work was joy, it's now thistles and pain. Even the command to be fruitful and multiply, that's childbirth, must be done with pain. The whole creation is turned upside down by sin. Everything is touched by it. And now even death enters the world. And that fear of pain and death in the physical world now perfectly reflects the spiritual death of man. Man who was made to walk with God in the garden is now cut off from his creator, the very source of life itself, from blessing to curse. These realities fit the crime of sin against the mighty God that we worship. Do you believe that? If we truly believe that sin is nothing less than rebellion against the God, who is the very giver of life, the very source of being itself, then our response should lead us to despair. And for many it does, and it stops there. And yet, even here in the midst of this curse, 
we have hope. See, to the serpent, that is Satan, God says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. See, part of the curse that Satan receives from God is that one day one of the offspring of Eve would crush him. And this does happen. Christ is that offspring, a fulfillment of that promise. But we're not there yet in the story, and the story just isn't as sweet when you tell it out of order. So God, like any good storyteller, he foreshadows what will come. In fact, good storytellers, they're actually only as good in so much as they're latching on to the truths that God has already revealed to us. So we love mystery because God has decided to surprise us in his story. We love tragedy because it reminds us of who we are apart from God. And we enjoy these things because they point to the truths God has actually revealed to us here in his word. He's left hints, even here in the first pages, in the first few chapters of the Bible, the very beginning. He is beginning to unfold his grand narrative that he planned to set forth before the foundations of the world. And so we move here into chapter 4, and we go straight from the fall to a story about the two sons of Adam and Eve. Their names were Cain and Abel. Cain offers a sacrifice to God in a sinful manner, and he becomes jealous of his brother, who does it in a righteous way. And God rejects the sinful sacrifice and accepts the proper. And in his jealousy, what does Cain do? He murders his brother. And so the story of man continues thus after the fall. The third person killed the fourth person. But God is faithful. He's faithful to Adam and Eve. And after Cain is banished and Abel is dead, Eve conceives a son and names him Seth. And God has provided a new son after losing these two. And the line of Seth, it continues in chapter 5. He continues to honor God. To call on his name is what it says in these chapters. And this is a, in clear distinction to this line of Cain. Seth's line is provided for generation after generation, all the way until Noah. And those who find their refuge in the Lord, who call on his name, those are his people. They continue to recognize the truth that undergirds all truth, that God is the creator and ruler over all. He alone is to be worshipped. And that's chapter 5. But not all men worshipped the one true God. In fact, most will not. The world has fallen into utter corruption by chapter 6. Chaos, perversion, and unnatural unions were the norm. The earth has become completely fallen. And here again, I don't think we actually believe what this is saying here. We read what happens next in our story as if it was some kind of nice nursery rhyme. We even have little happy songs about it, and we paint our children's nurseries with it because we like animals and kids like animals. But I want you to listen to the dire state that's recorded in verses 5 through 7 of chapter 6. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. 
So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I'm sorry that I have made them. The Lord God of the universe. Remember, the creator and sustainer of life, the very root of all things, says sin has so broken not just man, but all of creation, that I should destroy it. That's the weight of sin. That is the grievous nature of what we've done. Do we believe that about our own sin? This is the true story. And because we don't really believe that our sin is that bad, the most outlandish thing about the whole narrative to us is that he actually does it. He wipes out the whole world. And we can't fathom that. So we make up alternate versions about how that probably didn't actually happen or how that's some stolen story from some other culture. Maybe there are some honest skeptics out there. But I think this is the root of why we go looking for something else in the first place. The flood says damning things about me, and I don't like that. Apart from the unmerited grace of the holy God who caused it, we're sunk, literally. But thank God, it says so much more than that. Because that's not all that happens, is it? Along with all of the horror and the damnation, which, mind you, is rightly deserved, God's grace abounds, and he keeps his promises. The curse of the serpent still needed to be dealt with. And so back in chapter 6, verse 8, we see that Noah finds favor in the eyes of God. And if you remember when we talked about this the first time, this isn't about how holy Noah is, but how God's favor came to rest on Noah. It was a bestowed favor, an unmerited grace of the holy God. So Noah is indeed saved, along with his family and many creatures that are appointed by God. The Lord preserves for himself a people, a new humanity. When the whole ordeal is done, God makes a covenant with Noah, a promise, a re-upping of the original promise that we saw with Adam and Eve. And here in chapter 10, we see that covenant laid out. Just like Adam and Eve, Noah and his family are instructed to have dominion over the creation. Just like Adam and Eve, Noah and his family, along with all of the animals, are told to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. But what does that mean? Well, this is nothing short of creating all of human society. But how? How could they know that God wouldn't just strike them down again? What sign could he give them to trust that his covenant is true, that he would never destroy them in the same way? Like a warrior who has come to rest, he is hung up his bow in the sky, a rainbow. And every time we see it, we are reminded that God's wrath, like an arrow, it's no longer pointed down at the earth to destroy it by another flood, but it's hanging in the sky at rest. So even in one of the greatest displays of his might, his power, and his willingness to exercise his righteous justice on the sinfulness of man, we have on display with the colors of an artist. Literally every color in the visible spectrum, mind you, a sign of peace and promise from God to man. 
man who deserved death, but was given life and refuge in an ark. So, what did we do? What did we do with this promise? And I say we because I want to remind you again that this is our story. Surely we wouldn't squander this gift of peace in this new world, would we? Except that's precisely what we did. (laughs) And it wasn't like this happened after several faithful generations. No, in this not-so-great reset of things, everything is not fine. Noah here, in this same chapter, where God reestablishes mankind through a covenant with him, cover your ears, kids, he gets drunk, naked, and shameful. And on top of that, one of his sons seizes the opportunity to shame his father even more. See, even on this side of God's awful display of wrath against the sinfulness of man, the very man whom he saved has shamed himself in sin. Can't you see that even with the good gifts that God gives us, we taint them all with sin? Yet, two of Noah's sons decide, rather than to take advantage, they rightly honor and respect their father. They cover him in his shameful state. See, even in our sinfulness, God is unfolding just a little bit more of his story for us to see. Because of this act, Noah blesses one son in particular, and he curses the one who shamed him by cursing his offspring. In chapter 10, we see this blessed line, the line of Shem, Noah's son. Even in the face of sin in this new world, God continues to preserve his people and fulfill his promises. And this brings us now to chapter 11. And this is really the pinnacle of man's steady decline throughout these 11 chapters. It's the Tower of Babel. Now, whether man built this giant structure to commune with his false gods or to attempt to usurp God's rightful place in the heavens, either way, it is clear that man believed that he could do anything. And this is the call of humanism today, still. Anything could be tackled with enough education, with enough self-help, with enough therapy, with enough money, whatever it is, you name it. Man believes in the power of man, just as much today as he did then. And here's the nasty kicker, okay? According to this passage, we're kind of right. Chapter 11, verse 6 says, And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they have all one language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. See, we could do pretty much anything we want. We were designed to rule over this earth, remember? We have the ability to solve the wildest and most complex problems, but we do not possess on our own the will to glorify God in the doing of it. Remember that our role is to rule as he rules, to reflect him for his glory, but man, apart from God, will seek to glorify anything but God. Romans 1 in verses 24 and 25 says this, Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their heart to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worship and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. 
And that's what we see here. Man worshiping man. Man worshiping the created rather than the creator of all things. But because God knows better than we ever could, he confuses their language. And this is not just simply a judgment, though it is that. It's also a grace that their own sin would not flourish to its full potential. So goes the story of man up to this point. Man is sinful and deserving of righteous judgment, yet God has been gracious. And this continues. Here at the end of the 11th chapter of Genesis, God begins a new chapter in his unfolding narrative. We have a section that seems odd to us today, one of those lists of names that we see in Scripture. But this one takes us from Shem, the blessed line, all the way down to a man in the house of his father, Terah, named Abram. And here's what we need to see from sections like this in this list. Everything after the fall, from man's perspective, was a downward spiral. Even after God destroyed the earth and saved one righteous household, man still could not escape his own rebellion. And that is where chapter 11 leaves us. Leaves us in this sad place. Leaves us with longing, but it also leaves us with hope. It leaves us with the realization that God must intervene on our behalf. And so I ask again, do we actually believe this? Do we believe that God must intervene on our behalf? If you look at these 11 chapters, and they are nothing more than a couple of moral stories to help us know right and wrong, if we look at Genesis as some sort of myth with just a few scattered facts within it, if we come to Genesis on anything other than the terms that it brings to the table, which is a claim to total, universal, foundational truth, then we have come to it in unbelief, and we will miss out on the riches of the story of God himself at work in our history, in our world, in our own lives. I beg you, church, to believe So far, this has seemed such a somber place <laughs> to end our passage today. But do you remember that hope? We may have picked it up as we walked through that downward spiral. God is preserving a righteous line from Adam to Seth, from Seth to Noah, from Noah to Shem, and from Shem to Abram. And as we jump back into Genesis, we see how this story unfolds, how God calls and preserves his people. He works through covenant relationships. How he's working even in the first few pages of his word to bring about the salvation and freedom from the curse of sin. How the offspring who would crush the serpent would be provided on our behalf. He is preserving his promise. So while it's clear right now at the end of chapter 11 that man cannot overcome his own rebellion, we also know that there is only one person who can, God himself. And because our story has the biggest God, our sin presents the biggest problem. But the promises of God fulfilled bring the biggest payoff. So in order to deal with sin, God had to come himself to earth as a man named Jesus and die on a cross to pay the price for our rebellion. Do we believe that? 
If we believe the truth of the story of Genesis 1 through 11, then we must. We cannot do it on our own. God must intervene. So when Jesus did come, he came as a descendant of this man, Abram, an unbroken line from the garden to Christ. And because he was a man, he was fit to take the punishment for our sin. Because he was God, he didn't deserve it. So Christ took care of our great need for forgiveness that started in the garden. And, listen, he perfectly reflected the rulership of the holy God here on earth. He was the first man ever to do it. But he won't be the last because one day he will raise us from the dead in glory to finally and rightly rule and reign with him. Do you believe that, church? What great hope we have. Satan thought he'd won. The foot was bruised when Christ was dead in the grave, but God has all the power. Of course he didn't stay dead. And so the debt is paid. The rebellion is over in Christ. And God is reconciling all that was lost in the fall to him, even now. Christ is overturning even now the curse of sin and death. See, sin may have tainted the earth, but Christ the King is eradicating sin by every means necessary, even his own life. That's how much it cost. So this unfolding story, it's bigger than we could have ever imagined when we started. In the fall, we lost our communion with God. But in Christ, we have direct access to God himself. In the fall, we lost our place as righteous rulers, as part of his family. But in Christ, we are more than conquerors and co-heirs with him in his kingdom. At Pentecost, the Holy Spirit reversed the Tower of Babel. Confusion in our rebellion now becomes unity in Christ. The fall gave us shame. The cross gave us forgiveness. And so we rightly feel the weight of sin because of the immensity of the God that is described here in these pages. We rightly feel the weight of our total lack of ability to do anything about it. But what good news it truly is then to hear the gospel, to be forgiven, to be restored, to be made righteous, to hope for glory. And thanks be to God for intervening in this world to do what we could not to save us from our sins. And when we will see as we open up the rest of Genesis, this sin continues, doesn't it? It doesn't stop here. And that happens even to this day. We see it in the hope of the humanist grasping at his own efforts to solve all the problems of the world. We see it in those who are turning to false religions and Norse gods. In their search for hope, they will look anywhere except the one true God, who is infinitely capable of all things. But there is hope for us and for them. Hope in Christ and what he has already done and what he is doing even now. But I challenge you with this. Believe what is in these pages. Not just as stories, but as truth. And as we prepare to tackle the rest of Genesis, I encourage you to feel the weight of it all, the great need, the hopelessness of striving to fix it on our own, the sadness of our own rebellion. Yes, we glory in the hope of Christ, but how sweet is that glory when we rightly feel the weight of our own sin?
So come with anticipation to see how good our God is. Come ready to believe deep in your inmost being the truth of God's word. Pray that this would produce a love for those who need to believe the truest story that there is. Let Genesis humble you. May it teach you to have a thankful heart for what the God who made all things has done to bring about the repentance and forgiveness of his rebellious sons and daughters and the renewal of all things. What a truly wondrous God we have the privilege to worship together today. Let's pray.